Coming today on Negotiate Your Best Life with Rebecca Zung. When you're asking for supervised time sharing, be really careful about what it is that um, that you've done in the past, because you can't ask for supervised time sharing and then the kids have been, you know, in this person's care uh, on a regular basis for several years, and now all of a sudden that the divorce is filed, you're asking for supervised time sharing. So the big questions are these. How can we navigate and negotiate every situation in our lives, in our career, in our businesses, in our relationships, and even with ourselves for our own self-worth? In other words, what if you could win every time and have no losers? Let's face it, we're not negotiating just to buy a car or for a pay raise. We are negotiating for living in every aspect of our lives. How can we do that powerfully, successfully, and victoriously? Those are the questions, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Rebecca Zong, and welcome to the time where you negotiate your best life. Okay, so let's dive in. The name of this easy foolproof method is the BIF method, and you may have heard of it before. It is pioneered by the great Bill Eddy, and I have actually interviewed him before, and I will go ahead and post a link to that interview uh, below as well so that you can check that out if you want to. But very briefly, BIF, B-I-F-F, stands for Brief, Informative, Friendly, and Firm. Step number one is B, which stands for brief. You're going to want to keep your interactions with that narcissist brief because their number one goal is to manipulate you, to use you for whatever they can so that they come out looking as good as possible. You only exist really to benefit them. They don't care about you. Whether you're dealing with an overt narcissist or a covert narcissist or whatever kind of narcissist you're dealing with, you want to be careful about getting sucked in to their patterns because as soon they want to suck you in. So, for example, they'll give you like three choices. All right, here's three choices. Uh, to settle our case or to resolve our issues, whatever it is. And then you come back and you pick one and they go, oh no, it's now changed. Because the end goal is not to actually come to a resolution. The end goal is to manipulate you. So don't get sucked into that. You have to keep your interactions as brief as possible. Okay, so that's step number one. B stands for brief. All right, ready? Number two. Two stands for I. I stands for informative. So yes, you can be informative. You can tell them things. You will want to be able to interact with them in a way that is just, here's the facts. Here's the data. Here's the supporting data. Because one of the things that a narcissist will constantly try to do is twist what you say. Twist your words, twist what you say. They're always going to want to make sure that they come out winning and on top. So, gaslighting is one of the things that you'll, they'll use. So, you know, we had that conversation. You don't remember that? Oh, um, you agreed to blah, blah, blah. Oh, you misunderstood blah, blah, blah. Right? So, the more facts and the more information that you can have to back up your position, the harder it will be for them to uh, manipulate you. So they're still going to try. 
Don't, don't get me wrong. They will definitely still try. But just I stands for informative. You just give them the information and then it's like in and out, sort of like the soup Nazi. I'll have this kind of soup, boom, onto the side. So you just give them the information and then you're out of there. And by the way, part of also being informative is that you're going to want to document everything that you say or do with this person. Everything should be in writing because they will try to twist your words. Okay. So as much as you can, you want to keep everything in writing. Uh, especially if you're dealing with children, you're going to want to have some kind of a app that you're using that tracks your conversations because this person will definitely constantly try to manipulate what you're saying. And by the way, if you are negotiating with the narcissist, I have a special video that I made just on how to negotiate with the narcissist. And I will drop a link to that below. So you're going to definitely want to check that one out too. Okay. Number three, the third step is F and F stands for friendly. And that's because even though you despise them and you probably hate their guts, believe me, I have my own narcissist in my life that I have to deal with. Everybody does. We all do, whether it's a coworker, whether it's a partner, whether it's uh, you know, uh, a family member, it doesn't really matter, but you probably have a narcissist that you're having to deal with in your life, right? So the, the thing is that they want you to be upset. They're trying to manipulate you into getting emotional. And if they're a covert narcissist, that's even more their thing. And, and what they're trying to do then is make you look like you're crazy. So, and narcissists, regular narcissists do that too. So you want to just remain friendly because then they think you're unflappable, totally nonplussed. And whatever you're doing, you're doing, I'm watching you. I'm watching you like I'm watching a two-year-old having a tantrum on the floor. I'm not getting engaged with that. Okay. So you stay friendly because as soon as you lose control of your emotions, then they know they have you. Okay. So F stands for friendly, the first F. All right. Second F. Last F, this is step number four. The last F stands for firm, and you've got to remain firm. One of the things that narcissists do is they push boundaries. They don't think they have boundaries, and they also have this mantra going on inside of them I will not be ignored. So they're going to push boundaries. They're going to want to push your buttons. You've got to remain firm and not allow them to do that. All right. So brief, informative, friendly, firm in and out, get out of there, don't engage. And that's how you're going to beat them at their own game. All right. If my ex is a narc sociopath with bipolar, should I not try to get supervised time sharing for my children? So let's talk a little bit about the best interest analysis when it comes to children. And again, you know, I'm only licensed as an attorney in Florida. So I can talk in general about what courts are going to be looking for as far as best interest analysis when it comes to children. And um, basically, you know, people have a right to be parents to their children. So they're going to start with this presumption that people have a right to be parents to their children 
So, you know, they may or may not um, entertain things that have to do, which, you know, you think are really awful. In other words, you know, they were a really horrible husband or a horrible wife, or maybe they were a horrible person. But, you know, being a narcissist is not illegal, even though, yes, I think it should be in a lot of ways. But being a narcissist is not illegal, and it doesn't necessarily translate to, from the court's perspective, to making that person a bad enough parent that they're going to interfere with their rights to be a parent to that child so or children. So what that means is, is that um, you have to prove why that person shouldn't have rights to their children. And um, it's, it's very oh, oh. Uh, anyway, it's very difficult to prove sometimes. So, um, you know, what you want to show, you don't want to go in and say this person is bipolar or, or go in and say this person is a narcissist. I mean, narcissist is more like traits. I mean, yes, it's a personality disorder, bipolar disorder. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but bipolar disorder could be more of a like a chemical imbalance. Um, and I've known plenty of people who um, have bipolar disorder, who are on the proper medication and don't necessarily, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad parents. It just means that, you know, they have to be regulated. And you want to be really careful about not um, making it look like uh, you're, 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 you're saying that there's something wrong with someone just because they happen to have a mental illness. Now, all of that being said, if they have something that is, you know, their mental illness is causing harm to the children in some way, let's say that the person is violent with them or um, maybe they're just impulsive and they're not thinking straight. You know, they've, they've left the children alone in the car. They've left them alone um, to go out drinking. They have, you know, all different types of partners coming in and out of the house at all different hours of the day. And, um, you know, there's no stability for the children. You know, you want to focus on things like that not necessarily coming right out and saying, hey, this person is a narcissist or this person is bipolar. So while, you know, it, it sounds really dramatic to say this person is bipolar and they're a narcissist, um, the courts are, the courts, meaning the judges, are going to look a little bit more to, okay, but how does that affect their parenting and how does that affect um, you know, what happens when the kids are at that person's home? Can they provide a stable home for the children? Um, so um, the short answer is it might cause them to need to have supervised time sharing, but it may not. Um, and, and even if somebody has supervised time sharing, a lot of times the courts are going to require some kind of a plan or a step up plan where maybe they're, um, you know, no longer going to have to be required to have supervised time sharing. It's pretty rare that they are going to be on supervised time sharing for the rest of the children's um um, time sharing, you know, until they're, you know, let's say they're five years old for the next 13 years or whatever. So, um, 
I would just say that um, sometimes it can make a difference, but sometimes it definitely, um, it, you know, isn't necessarily the case. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive your store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or Shopify's POS Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bestlife, all lowercase. Go to Shopify dot com slash best life to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash best life. Did you know that Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take 20,000 breaths a day? But according to the EPA, it's two to five times more polluted than outdoor air and it's sometimes up to a hundred times more polluted. I know for us and our family, our family has struggled with allergies to dust mites and mold and all sorts of things. And that's why we have loved using an air purifier and air doctor has been amazing for us. And it has captured the attention of media outlets such as CNN, Money, ABC, and more. And it filters out 99.9% of dangerous contaminants such as allergens and pollen and pet dander and all sorts of bacteria and viruses so that your lungs don't have to. And it's super quiet and much more quiet than other ordinary air purifiers. Air Doctor also comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. So head to airdoctorpro.com and use your promo code, yourbestlife. And depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to $300 off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 value, lock this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code YourBestLife. So I'm trying to finish answering your questions and also sort of look at other uh, questions. I, I'm seeing, it's kind of hard because I'm looking at this on my phone, but I'm seeing something about withholding medication. And, you know, whenever a court is looking at what's going to be best for the children, they're definitely going to um, take a look at things like, okay, the children, maybe the children are 
you know, um, diabetic or they have ADHD or something that requires them to need medication on a regular basis. And they will take a look at whether or not that parent is giving them the medication. I've actually had judges put directly into court orders, you know, that when they're with this parent, that this parent agrees to give the children the medication that um, they are supposed to have, um, you know, as, as prescribed by the doctor. I mean, I've had parents who, you know, I had a, a client one time who was ADHD himself. Um, he did not like the um, the idea that he was um, on medication when he was a kid. And so he ended up, um, you know, not liking giving the medication to his own son. So he just didn't give it to him. Uh, and, you know, in, in his mind, he felt like he was doing his son a favor because he said when he was a kid, it made him feel bad, you know, like sluggish or whatever it was. I can't remember what, why he, he said it didn't, you know, work for him. But he, so he just refused to give it to his child when he had when he had the child with him. So, um, okay, so somebody's saying, what are my chances if, I, if the other party is an alcoholic and, and neglectful? You know, it's so hard to say what are your chances, um, you know, when it comes to supervised time sharing or, you know, and, and it's like, what is it that you're asking for? And 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 one of the things that I, I want to caution people against is when you're asking for supervised time sharing, be really careful about what it is that um, that you've done in the past, because you can't ask for supervised time sharing and then the kids have been, you know, in this person's care. Uh, on a regular basis for several years. And now all of a sudden that the divorce is filed, you're asking for supervised time sharing um, or, or you're asking for limited time sharing. And the limited time sharing thing, I also think can be a little bit of a slippery slope because, um, you know, if if you're asking for limited because you think that they're, they're in danger when they're with that parent, you know, I, I almost feel like you should be asking for supervised because if they're in danger for 50% of the time, wouldn't they still be in danger if they're only there 20% of the time or 5% of the time or any percent of the time? You know, so you just have to be really, really careful about that. Um, and, okay, somebody's saying something about peanut butter. It's like really hard for me to see because I'm on my phone with because of the technical difficulties for today. But obviously, if, if, if your child is allergic to peanut butter and your child almost died because um, the parent gave that child peanut butter, that's a really good fact for you. That's a really good thing for somebody to um, present. So um, as far as, um, you know, trying to get supervised time sharing or something like that, you know, anything like sole custody, supervised time sharing, again, you know, you're starting against the wave there because the wave is like supposed to be 50-50. Talk to us a little bit about your journey. Well, first of all, this is not the first time I've been faced with a narcissist, uh, you know, being an attorney. Um, we have clients who are narcissists that we have to deal with. And that is an interesting experience. 
And each time I've dealt with that, I've had to go no contact with them in order to get rid of them. And then in my personal life, I never, you know, I didn't know what a narcissist was. And uh, I uh, fell victim to the normal uh, cycle, the normal cycle of uh, a narcissist that I've learned from you, Rebecca, um, and all your guests. And the, the, one of the things that struck me the most was when you interviewed medical people, and they talked about the chemicals that are released in your body when, when the narcissist captures you. And <clears throat> so I, I was the victim of a typical love bomb. And then um, after a couple months, I got the degrading part going. And then uh, a month later, you know, uh, mini abandonment. And uh, like most people, by the time we were done with the cycle, I was addicted chemically to my narcissist. And um, I didn't realize at the time that um, she had objectified me, that she, because of her condition, her internal condition, she objectified me. I took my um, image and took it inside her, and but made it grandiose so that when she got to really look at me, um, then she'd have some way to degrade me. But I found that during, I had a very intense love bombing that, um, you know, by the time we were done, we were engaged already. And um, it was, uh, to me, it was the most powerful love I've ever felt in my life, something I'd never felt before. And I didn't realize it at the time, but because she had taken and objectified me, I was actually falling in love with myself. And <laughs> it was it's very interesting to realize that after all this time, you know, uh, I they, was- They mirror you. They mirror you. They know yeah. how to do that. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I always wonder, I mean, how could a person who is so different from me in age and ethnicity be so much like me? Now, how could they like the things I like, do the things that I do? I mean, it was like, you know, uh, um, a relationship made in heaven. And uh, I, I couldn't do anything to fight it. It was like impossible. And then when the degrading came, um, I started, you know, I did unconsciously, well, it was consciously, but it was hidden from me by my subconscious. I did what you, you recommend. You recommend to take a journal, to make a journal entry. And, and I did that. I didn't know that I had done that until after um, uh, the arrest. And... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he just throws that in there like, hmm. <laughs> well, I think we'll get there eventually. But um, the uh, I, I wrote down, uh, I have 55 days worth of notes over a five, six-year period of what abuse I took. And when I read it, 
And excuse me if I get emotional about this because it's you know very close to me, and it's close in time to me. I'm still you know in the middle of it. And when I read the notes, I, I can't believe it's me. And uh, you know, it, the abuse was so obvious and tragic, um, and the control. I can't believe I gave away my control. Uh, I wrote a book called Taking Control, and I gave it away to somebody else. And <laughs> how can I do that? You know, so I, when I saw those notes, I, I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. I said, who is this person? Uh, who am I? How could I let this go? Um, and, but I couldn't help it. I was like a, a heroin addict. And I had always wondered about my friends in the music business who were heroin addicts and ended up committing suicide. And, and now I know because, you know, in the trauma bond at the end, uh, it's, you can really feel the narcotic effects of this. You know, you are caught in a, a web like a prisoner. You know, people would say to me, well, you know, how was the pandemic for you? And I go, well, what pandemic? And they said, well, you know, the lockdown and all that. I go, well, I've been in lockdown for six years. I, I don't know what, what difference it is, really. And so um, I uh, took the, the notes and I put them someplace and um, forgot about it. Absolutely forgot about it. Completely struck it from my mind. And I had no memory of ever writing any note. Yet when I read them, it flowed right back to me. And um, so the reason why I know about the chemical addiction is from watching you on the show and um, you know, all your, your uh, YouTube videos were very instructive. Um, you, you referred me to my attorneys and um, I have been dealing with this and all the consequences of it ever since. And uh, I, there's so many things to talk about what happened, but what exactly would you like to hear? <laughs> well, why don't you talk about how you felt at the darkest hour? No, at, at the darkest hours. You know, um, I'm going to get a little emotional, but, you know, I, I found a note that I left in my phone uh, a day after I had taken pictures of some knives that were threatened. And um, the note said, um, if I'm dead, uh, I'm not suicidal. You know, investigate the person next to me on my bed. So I thought I was a dead man. And I still harbor that fear today. And, you know, as a result, I have a protective order, uh, which uh, enables me to maintain no contact. Mm. It's a protective order. It's supposed to protect me. So, you know, um, and I know my attorneys 
uh, are uh, knowledgeable in narcissism. And, and it's very important that when someone gets involved in a, in a marital or a other kind of relationship where they need a lawyer, that they actually pick someone who knows what a narcissist is because no one will believe you. They, because you do things that rational people don't do. And they think you're making it up. They don't understand that there is a group of people who didn't develop without being abused. And because of that abuse, they become a narcissist later in life. And it's what I never understood was what exactly was wrong with her. And could I help her? Um, could I uh, fix her? And I tried everything I could. I talked to the elders of my church. I talked to the police. I talked to everyone I could to try and figure out how can I help. And then when I watched your YouTube videos, I realized, oh, it's not my fault this happened to me. And there's no cure for her. So got to go no contact. And uh, that's... So, and, and and I think what you just said, you said something that was, I think, very distinctive and important. And I make that distinction in my new book too, which, so I want to make sure we highlight this. And that is that it's not just that the narcissist needs to be under, people need to understand the narcissist. People need to understand what the victim is going through as well, because you are also not in your right mind at that point. I mean, you've also experienced so much cognitive dissonance and so much, you know, they've they've used so many different tactics to destabilize you and to mentally abuse and, and emotionally abuse you. And if it's been over a period of time, you've you are in a state of such CPTSD yeah. that you come across sometimes the victims or the targets. I like to use target better because really it's more that you've been targeted. Um, come across sometimes as the crazy one. Uh, and I think sometimes judges don't understand that, mediators don't understand that because, you know, the narcissist sits around looking calm, cool, and collected while the targets look like they're all over the place. But part of that is because they've been subjected to this craziness for so long. Would you agree? Yes, you just described the body cam videos. Um, <laughs> I'm explaining the circumstances to my officer, and she's cool, calm, and collected, talking and persuading and winning over and love bombing the other officer. So believe me, they know what they're doing, and they're good at it. Right. And, and you know, part of it, of course, is that they've spent you know, I often talk about how in Malcolm Gladwell's book, he talks about the 10,000 hours to achieve mastery. Well, I mean, 10,000 hours is like roughly four years or whatever it is. I mean, they've been working on this since childhood. 
So, I mean, 10,000 hours has been achieved by them years and years and years ago. I mean, and and if you don't have the empathy factor, and so you're not worried about how people are feeling or anything else, it's no holds barred, right? So, yeah. you know, the, the, the hardest part is that, you know, I love her so much and I am hurt so much that someone that I love that much and trusted that much could harm me. You know, it's just, it's really a hard thing to accept. And, but you have to in order to go on. Well, you have to understand that you're not loving a person who is capable of loving you back number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, it's not really love because it's re- it really more of that, what you were talking about, that trauma bond, that addiction, that, that you know, I talk about Robert Sapolsky's study, you know, where he did that study on monkeys. And, you know, for those of you who haven't heard me talk about this before, that, you know, these, these monkeys were given a, a a reward, a treat, if they did something good. And if they got this treat every single time they did something good, then the dopamine levels in their brain were non-reactive. Everything was the same. But if they got a, a, a treat intermittently, such that they didn't know when they were going to be rewarded, then just the anticipation that they might get a treat, cause the dopamine levels in their brain to rise to the level of cocaine. So that it's the, it's, you actually become physiologically addicted to that narcissist because of that high and low, that love bomb, the ghosting, the hot, the cold, the, you know, and the highs are so high, you know, they love you more than you've ever been loved. And that, you know, the the pedestal, the sweep you off your feet. And then the lows are so low. And that's, that's what it is. So it's not, it's not a, it's not a true love. And then the thing is, they also target people who have their own trauma, by the way. People who have had trauma in childhood, they, they're able to feel that core, that, you know, who have their own core wounds, who need to love other people who want to pour all that love into somebody else who want to save people who think that they can give their you know that that empath thing you know and and so they take all of that and you know deplete you completely and you're left feeling totally and utterly complete, you know, depleted. And they're still starving for as much supply as possible. And it's a it's an unending cycle. But they feel they 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 target people who have that kind of core 
wound of I need to save somebody, you know, some people who have unhealed stuff inside of them as well. Right. Well, I'm my character flies that I'm a rescuer. That's my point. And uh, I also didn't take drugs. So I would have no idea if, if my body was being taken over by something physiological because I don't know what drugs feel like. Um, I barely drank. And um, I really think that they have to make you a better person even than you were when they captured you because they need more supply. And I actually, I, I think that there is a positive, there's a positive thing that happened to me uh, because I was in a relationship, despite all the abuse and all the things that I took, I actually grew to be a, a better person in every aspect because I was pushed to be that way by the person who has captured me. And, well, and then hey, I, if you can have gratitude for it, that's a good thing. That's well, a good thing. I think it's important that you learn from every experience and that you um, turn every disappointment into an opportunity for better and, you know, learn from the past. But, and that way you're not going to repeat it if you learn from it. And those who do not learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. So I hope that nobody out there uh, repeats what happened to me. And what's happening to them? It's it's. I think it probably would be seductive to people to want to repeat it and and to allow their narcissists to come back and take them over again, um, because you think you believe you really believe that there's no other person in the world that can make you feel like that, and it's a lie. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And, you know, but that that is, you know, what that trauma bond is all about. But if you can be grateful for it and start to see the signs for the future so that it doesn't happen again, then that's, you know, definitely all the better for it. Right. So after being in that dark place, how did you start to turn yourself around? Well, <laughs> I probably would still be taking it if um, uh, she hadn't taken the violence to the next level and hit me so hard in the face. And that kind of snapped me out of it right there. And at that point, I thought, wow, I'm really in danger. I better do something. Then I called the police. And uh, as a result, I had a moment of clear thinking. And I watched her videos very carefully for two weeks. And during during that time period, I discovered a lot about myself and a lot about her. And um, then I hired uh, some attorneys that you recommended, and we've been dealing with the problems. And uh, I have a victim's rights lawyer who is uh, making sure that I'm treated like a victim and not as a criminal. And it's important through therapy. I have therapy. I found a great therapist in England who 
is urging me to be a strong person and to show uh, everyone, including the narcissist, that I am not going to be captured anymore by anyone. And I am strong. I love it. Oh, I love to hear that. I love to hear that. I mean, there is life after narcissism, definitely. And um, you know, you get a kind of a clue as to how good life can be. You just, you just during the cycle, you just don't get to stay in it very long. You know, it, it could just happen at a flash like that. You've said it a lot of times on your podcast that boom, they just switch. You know, they're all of a sudden they go from being, you know, the love, love, most loving person to like a she devil. And it's just, you can't understand it. You know, I would just walk away and I would, you know, I learned a long time ago not to confront people who are like that. And I just would leave and I would think, what is going on here? This is insane. Now, how could somebody switch from saying, you know, uh, how do you feel that I love you so much to you're a liar, you're a cheater, you're you're saying all these bad words to me, you're yelling and screaming at me, and, and you're thinking, wait, who's she talking about? That's not me. Now that's her. That's it's really interesting, you know. Every, she called me, I looked at my notes, she must have called me a liar. 10,000 times. Yeah. And yeah. Meanwhile, she's the liar, of course, projecting. Every time she said liar, she's actually just raising her hand saying, liar, liar. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because, you know, I found out that a lot of stuff she told me was not true. And um, uh, I'm not going to go into any details, but we really need to form relationships with people that you can trust. Uh, and, and, so people true. Who, and people who have integrity. And, you you know, the narcissist does not have integrity and you can't trust them. You know, it's just, and if you give away your trust to them, you can guarantee that they're going to use it against you. As a lawyer, how do you uh, feel about the slave program and how do you think that that helps people? Well, having um, subscribed to it myself, you know, I think that you're, you, it has very helpful hints for people about how to put things together for their lawyers so their lawyers understand what's going on. You know, most lawyers and judges, they don't know what a narcissist is. They think that you're the crazy one and not the other person. And you have to, you know, somehow get your lawyers on the right page by showing them things. Like I picked out all my notes and my emails and gave it to my lawyer and my lawyer came back the next day broken, you know, saying, oh, I can't believe we got to get you out of this, you know, because they, they can recognize it when they see it. But when they hear it, they, they just don't get it, a lot of them. And they don't understand that they're dealing with someone who's not a normal person. You're dealing with a narcissist. 
someone who is only out to get what the narcissist wants. And so you have to figure out how to get from here to the end as fast as possible and safely as possible. And sometimes that requires you to put the case together yourself and hand it to your lawyers and say, this is what happened. Uh, do you need to talk to my, my therapist? You know, do you need to hire an expert in narcissism to explain it to the court? What do you need to do to make them understand? You know, it's, and the slave program, program does Um, awesome. Thank you. Well, I, I mean, I know that it has helped you and uh, I'm so grateful that you've been able to be able to break free. And so how do you feel today? How are you feeling today? Well, you know, um, we can't be uh, 100% 24-7. We just can't. Even a normal person, let alone a victim. Uh, or as you said, a target, you know. And so today, for example, I woke up and I was very melancholy and I was thinking about uh, coming on here and talking. And it's, of course, it's bringing up things for me. And um, I knew that I was going to leave uh, the pain and the melancholy in the room where it was. And I was going to walk out and close the door behind me and leave it in the room. And that's how I got the strength to make it to this. That's how, that's how I got there. So my day went from being dark to being light. You know, it's, and you really appreciate the light when you've seen the dark. It's like uh, if you, you really can't appreciate the dawn unless you are in the darkness first. Then all of a sudden, this beautiful light comes out and you feel so warm and comfortable and you forget about the darkness. And it's very important to do that. You can't, you can't dwell on that. You have to look forward. You know, the people who, who make it through life after dealing with a narcissist are the ones that take all of the baggage that they carry on their back and work through it and get it off. Because if they don't, the doors that are open in front of them, they're not going to fit through. They're going to have too much baggage. And you need to do that. They have to get through it. And um, it's rough. It's very rough because not only is it a mental and emotional addiction, it's a physical addiction. And uh, the chemicals that go through your body, I suspect that if you exercise a lot, like I've, I've gone and I've hired a trainer, someone who I trained with in the past, and I have uh, started an exercise program, that creates some of the chemicals that my body missed after I uh, severed the relationship. And... Uh, the cortisol from the from the uh, bashing that I took, I don't want to see that. You know, I don't, I don't want to recreate that. But you know, uh, so what I did was I I did therapy, and I did what the therapist suggested, which was to be a powerful person, 
to go back to the person to who I was before I met her and uh, to just look at at my inner child and and be that person again and be strong and not give up myself to anyone again mm-hmm. in that way. And that's what I'm doing every day. I and love I, it. I love it. What what would be the theme of your life today? My theme of my life today would be um, the clouds parting. Clouds are parting. Yep. I love clouds it. Clouds parted and the sun is coming out. I love it. Ah, so any final words of wisdom for anybody who's listening who might be where you were? Well, I would say that I was so attached by the trauma bond that every minute of the day I wanted to write or talk to my ex and I knew I couldn't. So I wrote it down on papers and then I threw them away instead of sending them to her. And my advice is to the people that if you get the urge to contact the person who's hurt you, write it down if you have, look at it, read it, accept it, and then tear it up and throw it away. (laughs) That's what you got to do to stay mentally focused because you're being torn apart every day and you have to put yourself back back together by realizing that in the morning, they're going to feel one way and by noon, you will have worked your way out of it and everything's going to be okay. It is. As long as you don't make contact, that's the other rule you have. No contact. No contact means no contact. Uh, I don't know why people don't get that. You know, it's the person, the other person is dead. You can't contact them. You can't watch them on their Facebook. You can't watch them on social media. You can't follow them. You can't look at them. They're dead. That's the way you have to look at it. And um, if if you really, really can make, make yourself do that, then you'll be fine. Coming up, more on Negotiate Your Best Life with Rebecca Zung. They're not hurt in that process because they don't care about you. And so you don't get over this. You're putting all your energy into trying to hurt this person who is just laughing at you. And in some ways, they're glad to continue to get this narcissistic supply from you because they know that you still care in some way. Are you struggling? Struggling with a narcissist in your life, whether it's a family member, a friend, a business partner, a soon-to-be ex, whoever it is, are you ready to shift that power dynamic, but you're just feeling like you cannot win, like everybody is believing their lies, and you're just feeling like there's just no way that you can shift that power dynamic. I've got a brand new masterclass for you. I'm sharing all my secrets and so that you can finally take back your power and break free from this hell emotionally, physically, and spiritually. I've never done this free masterclass before. Go to break free from hell and sign up. Come be with me and get my secrets so that you can finally take back your power and break free. Break free from hell and let's do this. 
Take a listen to our archive, where you can listen to more episodes that show you the path to how to negotiate your best life. What do they do? They go all over the place. They're all over the place. And then, you know, they're back in, you know, 1984, half the time or whatever it is that they do and they're gaslighting you. But you know what? Let's stick to the facts. And now we return to today's show. People who are in, I mean, so you know, since you did Hoffman and you know, so anybody who's listening, we're talking about the Hoffman, um, it's a trauma program. It's it's very, very good. But neither of us are affiliated with it. We just happen to no. both do it. It's a charity. <laughs> it's a non, um, it's actually a charity formation. Yeah. So it's the Hoffman Institute. But yeah. Um, so for those of uh, you know and both of us have dealt with narcissists and and you know uh, you know traumatic people in our lives and so we both know the 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 toll it can take on us and in our mental state and and so we say this with all authenticity and and humility um so for those people who are feeling that right now and who are, who are feeling, you know, and, and uh, smart people, brilliant people who are just in that situation right now. And they're going, okay, well, where do I start? You know, this is great, but, and I would love to make money and I would love to maybe do something, you know, where, where do they start? What can they do? So I would suggest like, do you mean from a point of view of just like breaking free from well, like to, or just to make money, like, start an online business or, you know, mm-hmm. um, they're like looking at you going, hey, she was able to go online and start an online business and like start make a multi-million dollar business from nothing. Yeah. So like I'm sitting in my house in a small town somewhere listening to, to, to you. What would I do starting today? I always like would say like the first thing to start with any business is first of all, like your purpose. So really understanding why you're doing something. And the reason I say that is because a business is just as hard as working for someone. All right. It's never, there's no like easy route between either of them, but you have to do something you're passionate about, something you're excited about, something that you're like, actually like, this is why I want to get up every single day. So I think first and foremost, it's like understanding like what your purpose is, how you want to leave. I was thinking about how I want to leave this world better than I left it. And for me, my purpose is to really help female founders. So I created a marketing newsletter, which helps people get more customers because I'm like, I want only 2% of women's businesses reach seven figures. That's crazy to me. So my purpose was founded on that. Like I want to change the stats. I get her her newsletter. (laughs) (laughs) And... So like focusing on that and your purpose can be anything. I also think don't get ahead of yourself into thinking, oh, well, how can I possibly monetize that? Because that's going to come down the line. But it's just like, what am I good at? And that can be anything from like cooking to, um, I don't know, dancing to like any of it, but really giving your spouse Arranging flowers to create. Yeah. or whatever. Yes. Anything these days. And then once you do that purpose stage, you start understanding and start looking into a little bit more around, okay, well, what will people buy for this? I mentioned it earlier. So it's like, what do you love doing? Um, What are you good at? And how can you combine that with 
where the market is, like what is the market doing? And like, are people buying these things and what people will people pay for? If you can find that combination and ask yourself, I always draw it, it's like, could the Ikai guy like draw four circles for people watching this on YouTube and say, but like four circles and that overlap, you'll find something that could be a really great business. The second thing I would say... So what are the four circles? It's like what I'm good at or like what I like, like what I enjoy, what I'm actually good at. Um, the third one is what's like what's happening in the market. And then the fourth one is like what will people actually pay for? Okay. And so once you start looking at that, I want you to then go and explore things, like go and play with ideas. Most people's businesses won't get off the ground because they don't even start to. Like they don't even get off the idea stage. And you don't even need to sell, tell a soul about it. You can literally just like start playing with things. And I'll just share. When in 2016, I decided I wanted to leave chiropractic. Notice the timeline. 2016, I didn't found Boss Babe till 2018. It took me two years to figure out. In the meantime, I tried selling stuff on Amazon. I tried, I was like, okay, I'll learn to be like, um, even looked at like MLM. Like I looked at all these things around like, how can I take an online business? And so I just want to be like, hey, if you're sitting here and you're like, wait, I've tried a couple of things that failed, don't give up. It's the same thing. You're trying to learn to walk right now. So the more times you can fall over, then you're going to stumble and land upon the piece that actually really starts getting that growth. So starting to try things. So the second thing I would say is like audience. So really building an audience. Or if you have an audience, like how can you sell it? How can you reach people? And let's say you're arranging flowers. You don't need to be out on Instagram, but you might just be like in your neighborhood newsletter or you might just be in your, you know, like you might sell, I don't know, maybe a beekeeper and you're like, you know, getting honey and you start selling that to the local shops, like whatever that looks like for you. It's just finding where that audience is at. Again, one of the biggest things that I see most people like doing is they block themselves. Like it's actually... Your job is like, really as an entrepreneur, is like not to take yourself out the race. Most people won't even leave the starting blocks because they take themselves out the race. They're like, oh my God, well, I'm never going to win. I'm never going to win that 100 meter race. So why would I even bother trying? Versus, wow, if I actually run the race, I'm already winning. Like I'm already ahead of most people. Most people don't even get out the starting blocks. So really giving yourself permission to be like, okay, like, let me just see. And then you can just start the next um, third phase. It's like your revenue Just start selling a couple of things and selling things doesn't look like millions of dollars straight out the gate. It's just like, oh, I made $20 here. I made a hundred dollars here. I made a thousand dollars here. And again, I think, you know, one thing that's I really want to bring home to a lot of people on social media now, you watch content creators. So there's like, was like 4 billion people on social media. And what like most people are actually consuming the content of the same people because there's only 1% that are actually content creators, but that's who most of us are watching outside maybe some of our family and friends. You're getting professional content creators. So most people were getting this warped vision of what's happening in life. Like, oh my God, everyone is successful, but me. Everyone has all this stuff, but me. Everyone needs to have a million dollar business else they aren't X, Y, Z. Whereas actually the reality is, 
everyone's just watching the same people. Oh, there's so many more success. There's only so many different ways to define success. It's not on a bank balance. And it also doesn't have to be on social media. So there's so many different ways in your business, whether it be doing stuff on Facebook and Instagram and other platforms and social media, or doing stuff in person, working with shops, like getting your, if you are someone who's crafty and you want to make stuff, working with local organizations or setting up a franchise that's a brick and mortar because you've always had an interest in, I don't know, massages, Aliweb has squeeze. I don't know. But I'm just like saying that it's really important to allow yourself to play in the zone around how you can bring revenue in. Because then once you bring the revenue in, you can move on to four, which is systemizing it, which is, okay, now I bought some in, let me do more of that thing. And I remember your story, Rebecca, that you didn't necessarily, oh, I'm going to talk about narcissism. I'm going to do this YouTube. Then you started seeing, well, hang on a minute, this is a conversation that's really interesting and starting to lean more into that. And then you know, so that's when you're starting to bring in the systems that support the revenue. And then it's about growth and scaling. So I would say like there's those five stages that I've always implemented, but I'll be honest with you because I don't want anyone to feel like left out. Like the purpose phase is often the hardest phase. Like I think sometimes we forget to ask ourselves like what we actually want. And so spending time in that phase, creating that vision of your life really, you know, if I think why I ended up as a chiropractor was because I didn't really understand what I wanted in my life. Like I didn't really understand like who I was, what I wanted to create that for me, I didn't want to live in the village that I grew up in. I didn't want to, you know, live in a small town. I wanted to live in a big city. I wanted to have more experiences, but I didn't understand that in my twenties. And I think sometimes that can go into our thirties, forties, fifties, if we don't ask ourselves, well, what do I want? Like, actually, what do I want? Journal about it, vision about it. And that's when that purpose element. And today, in today's world, you can monetize anything. Like there's people who are monetizing their feet because other people have foot fetishes. I mean, if that is not empowering to believe that you can sell oh anything. Oh my God. Really I didn't even that. know that. So there you go. So. <laughs> Literally. It's a thing, apparently. What's oh my, my God. And Instagram post and I had so many DMs. It was so weird. <gasps> wow. Okay. So there you have it. There you have it. But, you know, honestly, with social media nowadays and so many different avenues, like there's somebody who's going to buy something from somebody. And it's that whole like, victim thing. If you're not careful, if you hear yourself, oh, well, no one's going to buy my thing. Check yourself because if you don't actually underlying all of this, underlying those five pillars of purpose, um, sort of purpose, audience, revenue, systems, and growth, underlying all of that is mindset. You will not achieve anything if you don't tell yourself you can achieve it. Like the first hurdle is actually saying, oh, I'm going to start a business or, oh, I'm going to get out of this toxic relationship or, oh, I'm going to do this thing. Like if you tell yourself you can't do it, it's really a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whether you, I think there's that saying like, whether you tell yourself you can't, you can or you can't, you're probably right. Oh, a hundred percent. self-fulfilling. A hundred percent. You have to believe that you can. And I always say when people say like, oh, I, it's, it's not going to happen for me. I, I can't do it. They always get their way, whatever. I always say, okay, so do you want to be right about that? Or mm. do you actually want to get what you want? <laughs> exactly. Like that's actually a really good, like really good. I've never heard someone say that. Like, do you want to be right about that? Because <laughs> I think sometimes people do because they're stuck in that thermostat, right? That's where they're comfortable. Like, but okay, you get to be right. Go you. <laughs> yeah, you get right. to be right and you get to stay miserable if you want to. Yeah. Or you can be wrong and find the <laughs> happiness that you feel yeah, you deserve. Yeah, exactly. I love that. So true. Yeah. 
<laughs> so empowering. So you think you're free from that narcissist, but guess what? There are some things that you need to know once you've escaped. And let me tell you, this is the one thing that I say to people all the time. You don't actually just leave a relationship with a narcissist. Nobody just nicely walks away and says, hey guys, you know, this has been a nice, you know, let's stay friends. I thought that I could do that. I was in a business relationship with a narcissist and boy, was I dead wrong. I have a whole video on that, by the way. It's actually called I Was Dead Wrong. There are so many things that I was dead wrong about when it comes to that. You have to escape. People like run from relationships with narcissists. You end up like escaping with your hair on fire. It's like you're running from a burning building. So once you're out and you think you're out, what do you need to know? Well, number one, I'm going to get, give you five. So you're going to want to stay all and watch all the way till the end. This is really, really important. Number one is that it's not over. As long as they think that there's some kind of supply to be had from you, they will never let you go. And so if you think that you're just going to give them what they want and you'll be able to leave, you are dead wrong. So don't think, well, they'll see how nice I am. They'll see that I'm being reasonable. I'll give them something right from the beginning. And, you know, they say they want to settle nicely too. And you're just going to be dead wrong. You're going to end up being taken advantage of, and you're going to be halfway down the road, and you're going to be really, really upset that you gave in all of these things. And now you're way in the hole with attorney's fees, and they're going to hold you to whatever you said you were going to give, and yet they won't want to give you anything. And they're going to constantly be moving the goalposts when it comes to trying to make settlements and things. And by the way, I have a whole video on why narcissists move goalposts. You can definitely check that out. But you know, they're going to be keeping tabs on you. As long as they think that they can get supply from you, they're going to continue to do that. So it's not over as long as they think that they, they can. It's almost like there's peanut butter at the bottom of the, that jar. As long as they think that there's some kind of supply that they can get from you, it will not be over. So that's number one. Number two is that they're going to try to line up those flying monkeys and they're going to try to line up your friends and they're going to try to line up their friends against you. And they're going to go to you know these people and try to divide and conquer and try to get them against you and try to make you feel isolated and try to make you feel alone. Even if they say, let's be friends and we're going to make this amicable and all of those things regardless you know they're going to go to if you have a business relationship they're going to go to the employees they're going to do it behind your back they're going to go to the clients they're going to if you have children they're going to go to the children and they're going to try to get the children on their side against you i mean that's what they do because they're super insecure and it's just you know they're going to try to make you look like the bad person so that's number 2 the number 3 is they may try to come back and say, you know, let's get back together. Or even after they've attacked you and been heinous and horrible to you, it'll be like, well, I will drop all of this if we can still be business partners or if we can still be married or whatever. I, I mean, that happened to me actually in my business partnership that, you know, after this person was 
absolutely awful. Well, one of the offers was we remain in some sort of a business relationship. And I thought, what? Are you crazy? I mean, but that's, you know, what they do. So don't fall for that. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. The answer is no. I do have a video on five signs of narcissistic hoovering. You do not do that. No. The answer is uh, no. Uh, let me think about it. No. All right. So that's that's number three. Number four is they will move on and find a new supply source. Because once you they realize that your supply source is dwindling, you know, they see that there's not much peanut butter left at the bottom of the jar. Well, we gotta go get a new jar. Okay. So they will find a new supply source. Don't be surprised. Don't be hurt. Don't take it personally. That is their food. That is their lifeblood. That is their oxygen. They literally are leeches or, you know, vampires. I mean, they cannot survive on their own. So you will be dropped like a hot potato very quickly. I mean, as much as they say they couldn't live without you and they would be like a puddle on the floor or whatever, all those things that they said. And you're going to be like, oh my God, what? They moved on like so fast. And don't be surprised if it's somebody like in your circle, like your best friend, or, you know, they've got to be business partners with one of your employees or somebody you knew because they want to hurt you. They want to get back at you. So there's that too. All right. That's number four. And number five, the number five thing that you should know that you need to remember after escaping a narcissist is what I've been talking about all the way here is that you become public enemy number one. You become public enemy number one. They only see things in black and white. They cannot see gray. You know, you're either for them or against them. You're either with them or you're not. And if you're against them, then you are public enemy number one. So let's talk about Kim and Kanye. So they reportedly have a prenuptial agreement in place and they're worth a combined billion. Yes, that's billion with a B. So is this divorce going to get super messy? But what about the prenup? I mean, if the prenup is is in place, then how could it be messy, right? Well, here's the thing. The prenuptial agreement will probably only address the finances. So with regard to the assets and the income, anything like that, yes, it will definitely be not messy, assuming that nobody is challenging the terms of the prenup. But the kids, that's where there's going to be a rub because you cannot pre-contract for anything with regard to the children. In other words, you can't say, you know, six or eight years ago or 10 years ago or whatever, you know, in this particular instance, they were married seven years ago. But, um, you know, you can't say, here's what's going to happen with the children 10 years from now, because you're not going to know what is going to be in the best interest of the children at that time. So it is against public policy to pre-contract for anything with regard to the children. And the courts have the final say as to what's in the best interest of the children, not even the parents, because sometimes the parents don't even come up with the best agreements. Most of the time, courts end up 
just rubber stamping whatever parents come up with as far as an agreement, but sometimes they don't. And especially when people challenge that. So if there's even anything with regard to the children in their prenuptial agreement, it will most likely be found void and unenforceable as against public policy. That means that the whole situation up with the children is up for grabs. So potentially there could be a major messy battle with regard to the children. So the second question I've been asked on this is that Kim cited irreconcilable differences and is seeking joint and physical custody. So what does this say about her intentions and does this signal that she wants it to be amicable? So First of all, irreconcilable differences really only means that she just wants a divorce. It just is the terminology that is used nowadays to get a no-fault divorce. So you can use irreconcilable differences. You can say irretrievably broken. It just depends on the language in your particular state, but it just means that you just want your no-fault divorce, which is what all states offer nowadays. So that's the first part of it. But with regard to seeking joint and physical legal custody of the children, it might just mean that she wants him to still be a part of their lives, that she's recognizing that it's important that they have a father, uh, that sort of thing. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to end up fighting over what the actual schedule is going to be and what the actual parental responsibility is going to be. So in other words, she might say, I want ultimate decision-making authority around um, medical or educational or something like that. And especially given the fact that he's had mental health issues in the past, it's been very public. He's had meltdowns on Twitter. She's even come out and talked about his mental health issues and said that it's a complicated issue and that he struggles with it. So So with all of that lying in the balance, I'm thinking that there may end up being some sort of an issue around the custody matters. So the third question that I'm being asked around this is, could Kanye West's mental health issues play a role in his ability to see the kids and have custody since he's been open about his bipolar disorder and he has talked about it publicly? Okay, so With that being said, having a mental health disorder such as bipolar disorder, something like that doesn't necessarily preclude anyone from having their children and being good parents. People have an inherent right to be parents to their children. There's a constitutional right to have your your children and be parents to your children. So all of that being said, it doesn't mean that just because you have a mental health disorder that you aren't allowed to have your children. Of course not. There are many people out there who have mental health issues and they are really, really great parents. The rub is actually going to be in whether or not he is getting the help and the therapy that he actually needs. So is he taking the medications that he's supposed to be taking? Is he getting the therapy that he potentially is going to be needing in order to be stable and be able to show up for his children and be a good parent. So there may be some checks and balances in that process. Maybe it's supervised time sharing unless he complies with certain things. Maybe it's a certain amount of 
time sharing for a little while. And then he works up to something a little bit more depending on how he behaves and things like that. But you know, the overall thing is he'll still have rights to be a parent to his children. He'll still have rights to get access to medical records, access to educational records, be able to come to the school place, be able to show up at, you know, soccer games and things like that. But it he won't necessarily get 50-50 timesharing fully unfettered if he is not stable and he's not doing what he needs to do to keep himself mentally healthy. So the next question that I've received is they haven't listed their separate properties and assets, but Kim reportedly noted in her petition that pursuant to the party's pre, uh, premarital agreement, all assets and obligations of each party are his or her own separate property. And she also asked the court that each of them pay their own attorney's fees. So what does this mean? So this means that they probably have kept their assets pretty separate throughout the marriage. And the prenuptial agreement probably says something like anything that's jointly owned will be split jointly and divided equally. But my guess is maybe they haven't even titled anything jointly. And if they do have anything that they've purchased jointly, they've already figured out who's getting what or something like that. So more than likely, the financial piece of this thing will just shake out very, very easily. As far as the attorney's fees piece, she probably just pleaded that because it's required. The five main areas of a divorce are your assets and liabilities, your alimony or support issues, uh, parenting plans, child support, and attorney's fees. So she probably just pleaded something about that because she had to. And more than likely, the prenuptial agreement has something in there that says, if uh, either party challenges the prenuptial agreement, then uh, the losing party is going to have to pay both sides fees. But in my in this particular case, you've got a two two people who both have wealth, who both have money. So more than likely, they have the ability to pay their own attorney's fees anyway. So it's not going to be an issue. So. The final question is, despite the split reportedly being amicable, is there anything about the divorce between two high profile stars like this that worries a divorce attorney? How can things go wrong? How can things go wrong? Hmm. Every divorce attorney is laughing out loud right now because, of course, every single person when they walk into a divorce attorney's office says, I don't want to fight. Everybody says that. Even the flaming narcissists say that because why? Because they don't want to have to spend a lot of money. However, then people start disagreeing. And what I've heard is that Kanye is not so happy about this divorce, that he is stewing, that he is sad, that he is angry, that he is mad. And that means that if he is a narcissist, he may use this divorce process as an opportunity to make her miserable. He might try to thwart the whole process, thwart the settlement process, the mediation, the negotiation talks by trying to punish her by fighting her on the children or fighting her on whatever he wants to fight her on, obstruct things, refuse to disclose things, refuse to come to the table, maybe not show up at mediation. You know the deal. Those of you who follow me here on a regular basis, he is a person and people are 
prone to do the things that people do, especially when they are narcissists. And the reason why narcissists like to thwart the divorce process is because they have this undying need, this unending need for narcissistic supply. And if you want to know more about narcissistic supply, go check out my video on narcissistic supply. I talk all about that and um, and why they have this unending need for it. So I am concerned about that. I'm also concerned about the fact that maybe he's not regulated right now. If he is not taking the medications that he needs for his bipolar disorder, if he is not seeking the therapy that he may need, then he could be volatile. And that process could also make it very, very difficult for her, especially if she's trying to keep it behind closed doors, if she's trying to keep it quiet, if she's trying to make sure that she protects the children. Who knows? They could they could be both narcissists. And if that's the case, then both of them may be trying to get at the other and try to one-up the other. And what happens with narcissists when there's children involved is they don't have the ability to put their children first. And so they often end up fighting and using the children as pawns to try to hurt the other side. And the, the losers in that situation are most definitely the children. Okay, let's talk about why maybe getting revenge on a narcissist might not be such a great idea after all. I know all of you are like, what? It's not fair. They're going to get away with it all. It's terrible. Narcissism is a personality disorder. It's a personality disorder where these people have an inflated sense of themselves. You're not going to change them. I always say it's the four Fs, right? Don't call them a narcissist. Don't think that you're going to get them to see your side. Don't think that they're going to ever acknowledge you or don't think that they're ever going to see anything that you ever did for them. None of these things are ever going to happen. They need this constant sense of attention. They don't, they're not going to have empathy. There's this constant emotional aftermath. And I mean, I really thought that at some point that there might be closure and all that sort of thing. There never is. You're never going to get that closure. You constantly are feeling this sense of emptiness because you're feeling like, where are my feelings in this whole thing? But you're not getting it. Your your needs are never going to be met because they don't want to meet your needs. They, They don't want to have to meet your needs. While it is so common to want to have this conversation about that, you're just not going to get that. And you have to understand that you're dealing with a person who has their own sense of emptiness inside of them, their own traumas, their own hurts, their own triggers. And this is why trying to get revenge, there's several different things on here as to why it's going to be a bad idea for you. They thrive on attention. So first of all, if you try to call them out, they're going to twist it and turn it into a narrative where they're the victim, you know, that whole they're the victim thing, it's totally going to backfire on you. And they're going to end up getting more attention, more sympathy. You really have to be strategic about the kinds of things that you're going to do as far as revenge. I've never seen it work out well for people. It just 
haven't seen that work out well for people, especially when they try to use the court system for revenge. It just ends up costing you way more money, way more time, exhausting you in the process. It just doesn't work out well. You end up lowering yourself to their level. You're down in the mud with them. You end up just regretting it down the line. You have now compromised your own moral compass in the process. Depending on the type of of revenge that you're thinking about, it can even potentially have legal consequences on you if you're going to do something that might cost them their job. It can certainly damage your professional reputation, your personal reputation. Definitely seen that happen too. You don't need that. They are not worth that. They're not worth your reputation. Nobody is worth that. And long-term consequences are very difficult to undo. It prolongs your healing process. They're not hurt in that process because they don't care about you. And so you don't get over this. You're putting all your energy into trying to hurt this person who is just laughing at you. And in some ways, they're glad to continue to get this narcissistic supply from you because they know that you still care in some way. And yet you're not getting back at them. They're not feeling it the way that you think that they're feeling it because you're not hurting them the way that you're hurting. They're just getting that supply. It's not allowing you to move forward. It's not allowing you to heal. It's not allowing you to start building new relationships, forming healthy healing relationships. It's not allowing you to have time for introspection and the things that you need to do to get better. And by the way, if you need to get more connection with others and you need more healing, join my free private Facebook group, Narcissist Negotiators with Rebecca Zung. And by the way, if you need access to therapy and you don't have it where you are, we do have a sponsor on this channel. It is BetterHelp. You can go to betterhelp.com forward slash Rebecca Zung to get access to online therapy. We receive commissions on that. It does not cost you any extra. We just want you to have access to help and support and resources that you can trust and that have been vetted by us. The next thing is that it can backfire. And remember, it can tarnish your reputation. Maybe it does work. Maybe it does end up doing something to them, but maybe it doesn't. If it ends up doing something to you, then what good is that? How is it helping you if it ends up backfiring and hurting you along the way? And especially if others don't see it the way you are hoping to see it. Sometimes you can't control the way outcomes end up happening. You might end up isolated. You might end up further targeted. And remember how narcissists are very adept at playing the victim. And they're very adept at turning situations to their advantage. So you have to be extremely careful about that. By the way, if you are negotiating with a narcissist, make sure you 
you get my free crush my negotiation prep worksheet. You can get that at winmynegotiation.com, winmynegotiation.com. Make sure you get that so that you can start winning your negotiation. The next thing is it reinforces their belief, you know, that, that you're still there, you're still interested, it, it, that you still want them in some way, that you're malicious, that you're the bad one. It gives them a narrative. All of those things that you're acting out of spite, that it, they'll use it as proof, all of that, it emboldens their behavior. It makes them more challenging in the future. It ends up being a bad thing for you. Here are alternatives to revenge for you. Get therapy, get help. Cognitive behavioral therapy can help you reshape some harmful patterns of thinking and behavior. Professionals can help you with validation, coping mechanisms. Surround yourself with supportive people. Get the help and support that you need. I just talked about my Facebook group. That's a great place to start. You know, make sure you get my new book, slaythebullybook.com. Make sure you get that. Joining a support group for those who've experienced narcissistic abuse can be super cathartic. Shared experiences foster understanding and can help process that trauma. Make sure you educate yourself about narcissism. That's why you're here too, right? Don't blame yourself. Don't have those feelings of guilt that you have. Focus on your self-care. Focus on your healing. Have something that you can pivot your thoughts to channel your negative emotions into positive outlets, engaging in fulfilling activities that will help your self-worth, help your joy. Make sure you set those boundaries. Employ things like gray rock. Don't allow them to trigger you and make sure you go no contact. That is super essential when you're dealing with narcissists. Having boundaries, having a way that you can start to heal, taking that high road. Wrote. I always say, wear the white hat, wear the black hat, and personal growth. I, I know for me, it just, you know, like all of a sudden, because it was like little things, because I was dealing with a covert narcissist. Well, I had two different ones in my life, but yeah. the one that you knew about, I, it was, you know, it was like this death by a thousand cuts. There were like a whole bunch of little things that weren't right. Yeah. But, you know, with covert narcissists, they're so subtle and they're really, really good at being um, passive aggressive and just manipulative enough to get under your skin but they, they 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 live on this balance of you know this teetering of just enough to uh, uh, annoy you and traumatize you but not enough for the world to see what they're doing to you yeah. so the rest of the world sees them as good and kind and great and and so nice and wonderful people and only you see that other side of them. And so it's that whole gaslighting thing of, you know, making you think like you're the one that's crazy because look, the rest of the world thinks I'm amazing. Yes. You know, and yes. so it's really, really tough. And and I know for me, one of the things, because I'm a ruminator and, you know, and, and I, I was like always obsessing over what is this person doing? What are they going to do next? And, you know, um, and so I, I would say one of the things that people can do to stop, and I say this in other videos as well, is like, don't obsess. Don't, don't stop. I, I had this epiphany of mm. if I'm like, obsessing about what this other person is 
going to do to me next or, uh, you know, is, is stabbing me behind the back or, or, or whatever they're doing. Yes. Um, I'm not creating. I'm not in positive mode. I'm not experiencing joy in my life at that moment. Yes. Yes. So can you tell uh, us more about that? Absolutely. Okay. So obsession, obsessional thoughts, what that really is, is control. Okay. Let me think about this over and over and over again. So I can in some way control whether this person is going to hurt me. How is he or she behaving, right? What, what's going to happen, right? So that's all about trying to control your future, which is an illusion. It's impossible, okay? Now, control issues put your physical brain into fight, flight, freeze, right? Remember going back to that brain, that physical brain that's geared towards survival, okay? When we're trying to control something that we have no control over, which is somebody else's uh, behavior, we have no control over how somebody else behaves, okay? But we're trying to find that control over something that we have no control over. So exactly what you're saying when we're in... So say that again, fight, flight, freeze. Fight, flight, freeze. It is the primitive part of our brain, okay? It is the primitive part of our brain that is only rooted in survival. That's your survival mechanism, okay? Is trying to control your future so that you don't have pain, which sets you up to always feel this overwhelming sense of fear because we can't control the future. And we can't control the other person. You can't control the other person and you can't control anything that's, that isn't right here, right now. You can control your thoughts, your emotions, and your behavior. And so when you are in fight, flight, freeze brain, you don't have access to the higher level of thinking in other parts of your brain. And it is those parts of your brain that are associated with uh, creativity, innovation, groundedness, right? You don't have any access to that. So you get into, you know, when you talk about obsession, what you're talking about is this repetitive thought loop where you've got a thought that leads to a feeling that leads to a behavior that leads to another thought that lead right and you're before you know it you're in this vicious cycle of right. of a thought that keeps looping yeah yeah and it just is like the it, the, the the loop of insanity it's basically it is. the definition of insanity because there's never going to be any good outcome from that yeah. and when you were saying something about um you know you were expecting the, this narcissist or this toxic person to you know, make you feel better or feel, you know, love or whatever. The, the flip side of that is people who will say to me, he makes me feel like crap. Uh, he makes, or she makes me feel blah, blah, blah. Yes. And so giving them that power of saying, you know, I'm going to allow you yes. to dictate how I feel. And yes. I'm giving you that permission to yeah. dictate how I feel. And you're giving this person who feels worthless about their own selves. That's right. To dictate how you're going to feel. And you're never going to to, to have any um, satisfaction from that. That's right. So I want to also um, 
talk about, you know, a lot of people who are dealing with these people, they're they're constantly going, why are they doing this? Mm. You know, a reasonable person wouldn't act this way. Um, So, so talk about, you know, how, how to stop trying to apply reason to unreasonable. That's right. So where you lose your reasoning, right? If you are in a toxic relationship where you lose your reasoning is, say, is, is by buying into the thought, okay? Which is really fundamentally a belief, right? A, a belief is a thought we think over and over and over again, okay? So the belief is you make me feel worthless, no good, right? You make me feel that way. Now, here's the thing. The we... Okay, if you're a healthy person, the the most fundamental thing that you can do as far as shifting into a different mind is recognizing that there isn't a human being alive that can make you feel worthless, unlovable, unimportant, no good. Okay, they behave how they behave. It is your thoughts, your thoughts about how they behave it makes you feel these emotions. And most people don't understand that, right? Most people do really believe that it is this person that makes me feel that way, or it is this circumstance that makes me feel that way. So it's a faulty faulty logic and and cause and effect. Absolutely. Yeah. Always, it is our thoughts. Right. It starts with our thoughts. Our thoughts determine our emotions, determine our behavior. So when we can recognize, right, that we can control our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, we can let go and let people, they're going to behave how they behave. You're, this narcissist is going to behave how she or he behaves. There is nothing that is not, that has nothing to do with you. No. And the only thing that we can do, right, when we're in a better mindset and, and even if they say it's your fault, you caused this, blah, blah, oh, blah, it's still well, not. I mean, they're going to say that, right? They're going to say that. That's part, listen, so the, so the narcissist's automatic thought is always, your, it's your problem. That's what a narcissist does. There's no ability to take ownership, right? Right. And that's why they have a string of, right, like dysfunctional relationships. So the so, narcissist will always blame you. Yeah, absolutely. And and I know for me, you know, one of the things that was really important in in it, you know, I I had to recognize, oh my god, this person is sick. I, I the, the, you know, the or these people that I'm dealing with are narcissists. That's what they are. They're not going to get better. You know, it's really sad. It's too bad. You know, you you want things to be different because, you know, I'm a fixer. I have always been able to fix things, make things happen, you know. And so yep. I thought that I could fix it. Make Make it better, have it be at least cordial, have it be at least, you know, but you just can't do that when you're dealing with the person who is sick. And so acknowledging your own behavior, acknowledging what you did to um, allow this to happen is, is I think, really important because then that actually allows you to take control over and realize, okay, I have control for the next time. Yes. You know, and, and forgive yourself and go, okay, this happened. Yes. And I can learn from this. And now I know these things, but yes. allowing, um, you know, I allowed it to happen. Yes. You know, I mean, I love my Angelou's uh, where she says, um, 
When, when people when people show you who they are, believe them the first time. And I didn't do that. And so yeah. I had to take responsibility for that and then forgive myself and then move on. Yes. Yes. So, so we have like a couple minutes and I really want to get some of your like really awesome tidbits in there. So give okay. us your last thoughts on how people can really you know, move on and get over this. Absolutely. Well, okay. So also to quote Maya Angelou, because she's so brilliant. I know. I love. Uh, oh, she's amazing, right? Yeah. So he says that we are blind until we see and that when we know better, we do better. Okay. Oh, yes. So, that's such a good one. Right. So here's, here's the way it is for all human beings on the planet. All human beings, our lives, right, are a journey. Okay. And so every, with every step that we write, every chapter of our lives, we're blind until we see. And so rather than looking back and saying, ah, I should have done this and I shouldn't have done that. The way that you can see this is this relationship as toxic as it was. Okay. It's all in service of your growth. It's Mm. all in service of your journey, right? Or it's a mirror so that really almost you needed to be in this relationship and have this painful experience so that you can wake up because human beings, unfortunately for every one of us, we only grow when we're in pain. Yeah. And so we got to get hit in the face with a two by four before we wake up. Yeah. Yeah. Toxic relationships do. They wake us up. Yep. Yep. What is it, Rumi, that says something like where the wound uh, is that's where the light enters or something yeah. like that. Yes. yes. So good. And that's yes. so true. And, you know, honestly, I, I, I wrote books on negotiation. I've, I, you know, I presented a camp empowerment on negotiation yep. and, um, you know, my whole thing about negotiating with a narcissist has been born from having to deal with real narcissists in my real life. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I've been able to help, you know, now thousands and thousands of people, Right. Because of the pain that I suffered and, and helping people exactly. get past that. So. Exactly. That's why I developed dethroning your inner critic because of my 30-year journey of needing to unhook from my own automatic mind and rewire a new mind, right? It's like, yeah. that's what happens. We learn from our pain. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Negotiate Your Best Life. I'm Rebecca Zung. Tune in next week for another edition of Negotiate Your Best Life. Remember, if you want more ways to slay and you want more ways to be supported, you can always join my membership at joinslay.com forward slash slay. You can always subscribe to my YouTube channel and you can always grab my free Crush My Negotiation prep worksheet at winmynegotiation.com. Remember that today is a great day to start negotiating your best life. And I will definitely catch you in the next episode of Negotiate Your Best Life. Thanks so much for listening. 